0: This afternoon, we'll come from several places in Scripture, beginning in Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13. All of the Scripture readings this afternoon are related to Lord's Day 19b, the uh, part of that Lord's Day relating to the return of Christ in judgment Uh, So that is the the theme that will unite the, the various scripture readings. Isaiah 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones, and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. They will be, like an, they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the meads against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged." So far from Isaiah 13, concerning the destruction of Babylon. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, where Jesus foretells the fall of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead many astray, if possible so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other." From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions." And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So far the reading of God's word. As we reflect on all that we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 18, stanzas 5 and 6. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, the uh, Confession of Faith of this Christian Church, and also a summary of Christian doctrine. Uh, We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 19, uh, expositing the Apostles' Creed, uh, which we sang this morning. And we'll be looking especially at the last question and answer of uh, Lord's Day 19, Question answer 52. There the question is, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all His and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. But He will take me and all His chosen ones to Himself into heavenly joy and glory. So far, the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed, which is the Christian church's oldest confession of faith, we're, we're arriving now at the last line in the Creed pertaining to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, One of the things we've seen as we've been working through the creed in this way uh, is that the Christian faith is a distinctly historical faith based on historical facts. Uh, We believe as Christians, we believe certain things about history to be true. Uh, So, for example, we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem uh, to a thousand and a bit years ago. Uh, we believe that he was crucified under the government of Pontius Pilate. In fact, that's, that's why the name of Pontius Pilate is even included in the creed, to, to show the, the date and, and the time uh, and the place where Christ was crucified. We believe he died. We believe he was buried. And we believe on the third day he rose from the dead. Uh, But when we we speak of the Christian faith as a a uniquely historical faith, uh, we're not only talking about history in terms of the past. The Christian faith is a historical faith believing things about history of the present as well. Things that are happening right now in this world. Uh, That we are living in an age where Christ is building His church, uh, establishing His kingdom, spreading the gospel by His word, by His spirit, so that all nations will hear and be changed in our day. And we believe there's been a progression in history from 2,000 years ago till now where Christ has been at work and history is leading in a certain direction. And that also means we believe certain things to be true about the future. Now, as Christians, we have convictions about the future. And the church's conviction about the future is summarized here in the Apostles' Creed in this one line, From there he will come. To judge the living and the dead. Now, it should be said that this this one line uh, is pretty much the only thing that the Christian church universally agrees upon when it comes to the future. Uh, We believe, the whole church believes, that Christ will return and that when he does, he will judge the living and the dead. We share with all Christians of all times and places that conviction. Uh, From that point of agreement, there are many many different uh, understandings and traditions and beliefs uh, within the Christian church about when that will happen, about what sort of signs will precede that, about what that end will be like, uh, and and all sorts of other related questions. But that conviction, at least, that we do share in common, that Scripture teaches unmistakably is that Christ will return. Anyone who denies that Christ will return and and relegates that to something that happened in the past, uh, is, is denying the Christian faith, uh, is abandoning a conviction shared by all Christians throughout history. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, preaching to the Greeks in Athens in, in Acts chapter 17, he said it this way, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. Uh, There Paul is establishing in his first sermon, his first explanation of the gospel to these pagan unbelievers. He includes the return of Christ. So central is it to the Christian faith. Uh, the Christian faith and life rest on that conviction that our Lord Jesus will one day return. Uh, though now he sits at the hand, at the right hand of his father and there he reigns, the day will come when he will return. Now that hope has has been especially central and foundational for churches that have suffered from persecution. Uh, You can see it even in the Catechism, written in a time when the church faced severe persecution from the Roman Catholics. Uh, the, The Catechism says, In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven, the very same person who submitted himself before to the judgment of God for my sake and remove the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and his chosen ones into heavenly joy and glory. It's coming from a place of of trial, of persecution, looking forward to what Scripture has promised will happen. Uh, You can see the same also in the letters of Peter. Uh, Peter wrote to a persecuted and scattered church, to believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And you see this hope just coming back again and again in his letter. Uh, Right in in, indeed the very first verses of of 1 Peter. Uh, He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Uh, What does hope do? Hope looks forward, to the future, through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, again, the the whole orientation is towards the future. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole gospel presentation in the first letter of Peter is future-oriented. And the whole Christian faith, uh, though it it rests on convictions of the past and convictions of the present, is oriented towards the future. The, The Christian faith and the Christian life make no sense even without the hope that our Savior will one day return and return as judge. Now, that being said, it is important that we as Christians uh, gain a certain maturity and and learn uh, to to rightly interpret the relevant biblical passages that speak about Christ's return. Uh, Part of the reason for the vast uh, divergence of viewpoints and disagreements uh, regarding the the return of Christ uh, is a result of carelessness and sloppiness in dealing with the, the relevant biblical texts. We read earlier, for example, from Matthew 24, a very challenging passage that looks forward uh, to a, a future judgment. Uh, and many of us, when we read this chapter, we automatically assume that it refers to the end of the world, uh, to the last days. Uh, part of that, uh, the, part of the reason for that, is is in the translation itself. The King James Bible uh, presents it in the very. The, it presents the question of the disciples in verse three as uh, what. Will be the sign of the end of the world. Uh, our ESV has the end of the age, a, a more uh, fitting translation. Uh, also part of the reason we we automatically make that assumption is we don 't understand the Old Testament uh, upon which uh, that chapter is is built, and part of the reason too is is so many of us in our day are conditioned by by certain predispensationalist uh, theology uh, the the sort of thing that you find in 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 the uh, uh, I forget the, the, the title of the series, a series that, uh, of films and books that look forward uh, to, to the rapture and, and these, these dispensationalist ideas that tend in our culture now to inform our interpretation of Scripture. Uh, But there are several points in this chapter in Matthew 24 that clearly show that it's not, at least in the first place, it's not about the end of the world, but rather about the fall of Jerusalem uh, and the destruction of the temple that happened historically in the year 70 A.D. Uh, first of all, the chapter begins with Jesus uh, walking with his disciples uh, by the temple. And the disciples are pointing out to him that the beauty and the grandeur of the temple and all the buildings. And, and Jesus says to them in verse 2, Do you see these? Uh, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What's the introduction to this chapter? And it's in response to that shocking prophecy that the disciples then turn to Jesus in verse 3 and and ask Him, tell us, when will these things be? What things? The destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, all the rest of of Matthew 24 and 25 uh, is Jesus' response to that question. Uh, it, is, it is not in the first place a prophecy about the end of the world. Uh, it's a prophecy about the end of the temple, the end of the city, and the end of the age. Uh, we, we need to keep this in mind because there, there are uh, huge statements given in this chapter that we assume they must refer to the end of, of the world. But that was not the question Jesus was asked, and it's not the question He was trying to answer. In addition to that, uh, verse 34 is key to to our interpretation of this chapter. Uh, Verse 34, after all the talk of wars and and rumors of wars and fleeing to the hills of Judea and the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, we'll we'll come back to that point. uh, What does Jesus say explicitly about the timing of these events? He says, verse 34, all this will come upon this generation. It's for that generation, at least in the first place. That's, that's fairly clear. Now, that does lead to some tough questions, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus said all this will happen to this uh, generation. Well, what about, uh, for example, verse 29? Uh, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, here's where it's really important that we hear the words of this chapter, this prophecy, with Old Testament ears. Uh, this is, in fact, common prophetic language describing graphically the fall of a city and the end of an age or the end of an era. Uh, we, we we read from several passages in Scripture. Uh, if we look at uh, uh, Isaiah 13 that we read, the, the fall of Babylon. Uh, listen again to God's language of, of judgment against Babylon. Uh, he says in, in verse 10, The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Uh, it, it's a prophecy, though, regarding not the whole world, but that Part of the world, that city, that empire, and that age. Now, we see a, a similar thing in Isaiah chapter nineteen, an oracle of judgment against Egypt, uh, with with much the same language. Uh, we sang of of something. Uh, we, we sang of Psalm eighteen, uh, also filled with that language. The earth trembling, the earth shaking, the the the, the heavens uh, falling apart. And yet there, it's a psalm of God's salvation and, and God's judgment of enemies on this earth in history. What Jesus is doing then here in Matthew 24 is is he's borrowing prophetic Old Testament language and saying all that God had said would happen to Egypt and God did it, to to Sodom and Gomorrah and God did it, and to Babylon and God did it, all this will now come upon this city as well. Uh, To the Jews uh, who were in Jerusalem in that year, in 70 A.D., when the the Roman armies came against Jerusalem uh, upon that generation, as Jesus had declared, it really was as if the stars were falling from heaven and the sun was darkened. To them, it was the end of the world. It was absolutely the end of an era. uh, And the Jews, even the Jews today, have never recovered from that day. Uh, Jesus was not, though, talking about the end of the physical universe, uh, because he wasn't asked about the end of the physical universe. Uh, He was asked about the fall of Jerusalem, the end of that age, and that's the question Jesus is answering Uh, There's more to say, too, about Matthew uh, 24. Uh, We might ask, well, what's what's the abomination uh, of desolation in verses 15 and 16? There's a little parenthetical statement that says, let the reader understand. So there's some assumption that whoever was reading that in that day uh, knew what that referred to. Uh, And it's a phrase that's borrowed from Daniel. Uh, Daniel, in his prophecy, speaks about the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, And and it refers to some sort of sacrilege that took place in the temple. It says that you will see from the holy place this abomination. Uh, Jesus says it will be seen then in the holy place, meaning obviously before the temple was gone, which it is now. So it can't be something later than, than the existence of the temple itself. And, it, and it's something that will, will affect everyone in Judea. And actually, historically, there there seems to be a clear reference to this. The historian Josephus, uh, who describes, he was not a a Christian, not a believer, but he describes the fall of of Jerusalem and uses the same language. He he speaks of uh, how the Jewish rebels, in their last moment of desperation, rushed into the temple itself, into the holy place from which they were forbidden to enter, uh, and desecrated the holy place. It's an abomination that causes the desolation of the city Well, perhaps the most difficult verse to understand is verse 30. And I don't know that uh, any of you will be satisfied with with this explanation. Uh, Jesus uh, Jesus talks about the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the heavens. Uh, We think, how can that, how can that be Uh, referring to something that happened in that day? Uh, Was Jesus seen in the clouds at that time? No, it wasn't. Uh, There's certainly no record of of the Son of Man being seen in the clouds, except for one, Uh, and that comes from Daniel 7. Uh, And it might not be a reference to His coming on the clouds to earth, but actually His coming on the clouds to heaven, uh, on His way to the throne of the Father. Uh, he, He says, Then shall appear, where? Not on earth, in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man Uh, And there he's using language taken straight out of Daniel 7, uh, word for word. And in Daniel 7, it refers not to the Son of Man coming to earth, but the Son of Man coming from earth, ascending into heaven, and receiving from the Father dominion over all the tribes of the earth. Uh, It's the coming of the kingdom that's being referred to here. The Son of Man coming before the throne, receiving his kingdom. Uh, The reason we we interpret it that way is verse 34, which comes immediately after, that says this will come upon this generation. Uh, Jesus is not speaking about something in our day, or something a thousand or two thousand years from our day in the future, but something that happened in that day. And he's using biblical language to describe it. Now, one, 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 perhaps one more objection. Uh, some, some would also say, well, didn't Jesus also say that the gospel has to be preached to the whole world, uh, and only then would the end come? Uh, how then can this be about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? You know, missionaries never made it to much of Europe. Missionaries never made it to uh, South America. Uh, could this be uh, referring to something in that day? Well, what does Scripture say? Uh, Romans 1, verse 8, uh, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Or Colossians 1, verse 5, uh, Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it. Or again, one more, Colossians 1, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Uh, We should not think in modern terms of of the globe when Jesus says the gospel will be preached through all the world. It's the known world. The Roman Empire was their world. Uh, That seems to be what Jesus is referring to here. Uh, Therefore, it's sloppy reading of a chapter like this uh, to to take all that that Jesus says here and apply it to a future end of the world. Uh, At least, we must first reckon with the question Jesus was asked and how he tried to answer that question. Uh, That's what he was talking about, the fall of that city in that day. Uh, And that's the question that we we have to to think through before we get to applications for today. Uh, We should also uh, just pause uh, and marvel at the fact that all that Jesus said did take place to that generation. If you think of Jesus standing there with his uh, disciples and saying, not one stone will be left upon another, in that day... That was a ludicrous statement to make. It was Herod's temple. It was a beautiful building sanctioned by the Roman authorities and there was no reason at all to believe that that temple would ever be destroyed. Uh, To say that that would happen within that generation is a mind-boggling prophecy. And yet, uh, Jesus said it would happen within a generation. And it did. Now, the fact that the temple no longer stands, uh, that it was destro- destroyed according to Jesus' own words and was never rebuilt, uh, is, is one of the strongest evidences of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Jews today must reckon with this prophecy that their temple is gone according to Jesus' words shortly after Jesus' day uh, in exact fulfillment of this prophecy. Uh, so, uh, it's one more sign that Jesus came in fulfillment of the Scriptures, came in salvation for all the nations, and came in judgment for the unbelieving nation of Israel. Uh, that temple, uh, being fulfilled in Jesus, had no more use in, uh, in, in God's purposes, and so was thrown away. Now, with all that being said, we may certainly take a chapter like this, uh, acknowledging what it first meant in its context, and recognizing that what Jesus said then may have something of a double fulfillment. Uh, This is often how Old Testament prophecies worked. They they had an immediate fulfillment and a greater secondary fulfillment. Uh, Just for an example, when when Isaiah says, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, uh, that, that had an immediate fulfillment in that day. Uh, saying that that those who are are yet virgins today, and yet in, sh- in a few short years will be giving birth to children and calling them Emmanuel, God is with us. In a day when such a name would have been unthinkable, uh, that was a sign to that day. And yet, ever since that day, the the Israelites, the, the Jews, reflecting on those words, have said God meant something more than this. That this is a prophetic statement as well. There, there's a double fulfillment. Uh, So so they they understood that as as a messianic prophecy. That wasn't just a Christian reinterpretation of of, of that text. Uh, So also with the prophecies of Matthew 24, we may look at them and say, see how they were fulfilled in Jerusalem in that day, according to Jesus' words. And yet we may note uh, there may be something there uh, for us to learn from and and look forward to. Uh, We can look back as the church did. In the, in the years following and look back and say, thus was fulfilled Jesus' words uh, as he declared, and yet still there may be more to that text than, than meets the eye. Uh, that's been the way, in fact, that the church has always, over the, over the centuries, understood these chapters as something that looks back to that day and yet teaches us things about uh, what will yet uh, take place. It has an immediate fulfillment and a final fulfillment. Uh, So also then when Peter says in, in, in 2 Peter 3 that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, kept until the day of judgment. Uh, or, and that the day of the Lord will come in thie- like a thief in the night, using the exact same language as Matthew 24, uh, and that the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up, and the earth and all that's done on it will be exposed. Uh, there's no reason for us to assume that there, Peter is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, that's not the context. That's not what Peter's addressing. And in fact, he's writing to, to people scattered across the Roman Empire. Uh, but he's recognizing that what the Lord Jesus prophesied concerning Jerusalem was given to teach us things about the future of this world. It's a, it's a, a microcosm, to use a technical term, a miniature of the final day of judgment. Now, what this means for us is that we must be cautious when we interpret these texts that look forward to the future. Uh, texts like Matthew 24 or or virtually the whole of the book of, of Revelation, uh, and we must make sure when we read these books that we don't use them uh, to to jump off from those texts into imaginative, creative interpretations for the future. Like the 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 uh, the army of locusts uh, that whose wings had the sound of thunder uh, has been taken by some dispensationalists to, to be Black Hawk helicopters uh, zipping through. The the skies in some final future battle there's no reason for that uh, we should we should take these texts and understand what they meant in their context using the biblical language the biblical symbols and imagery that they used uh, one, one for example cannot properly understand revelation without first understanding ezekiel and Jeremiah, upon which that book was built, and Daniel, uh, as well, from which revelation gathers almost all of its symbols they 're taken from the, the New Te- or the old testament, uh, and indeed one cannot even understand Ezekiel and Daniel, without first un- their books written by priests, uh, at least Ezekiel was, without first understanding where those symbols come from in the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, Part of the reason we're so bad at interpreting uh, apocalyptic literature like Revelation is because we get so bored when we're interpreting books like Leviticus and Exodus that give us those terms that Revelation builds upon. We should not skip over these books. There's fruit to be gathered from them. But it takes hard work. It takes patience. It takes reflecting on the Word of God. All of, this, all of this means then that we should be cautious when interpreting uh, these, these books that speak of the end times uh, and, and the order and the detail of events. It takes great wisdom, great care, great caution uh, to understand what Scripture teaches. That being said, what Christ did teach unmistakably that we can stand upon and and say this will take place uh, and that the church has resoundingly confessed is that the day will come when Christ the King will return to this earth, to His kingdom, to judge the living and the dead. On that day, the dead will rise. Scripture is clear about that. Whether they died a thousand years ago or five thousand years ago, or they died only a day ago, they shall rise uh, and they will be judged. Uh, Scripture speaks in detail about the final judgment. Every person will stand before the judgment throne of God, uh, and they will give account, uh, including believers. Uh, Romans 14, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, We will all uh, stand before the judgment seat of God. Uh, A couple verses later as well, uh, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Uh, That day will come. Uh, there's a scene in Revelation 20 that, that uh, shows us what that day will be like. We read that passage uh, a moment ago. Uh, there's a great white throne and the dead are, are brought to life and are judged uh, according to all that they had done. There are these books, uh, these different sets of books recording what all people have done. Their, their, their actions, their words, perhaps even their thoughts are recorded in, in these books. Uh, the sea it says gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each according to what they had done uh, and if anyone 's name was not found, written in the book of life, a second book he was thrown into the lake of fire uh, so in this passage, there are these two sets of books uh, that are that are opened uh, one by what the, the books by which the dead are judged, containing all their actions. Uh, We we think of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 12 saying, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's one set of books. Uh, Scripture doesn't say what what level of detail is in there, but we we should be prepared to have our whole lives recorded in in those books. Uh, Perhaps even our thoughts may be read aloud on, on that day. The things that we've done, that that we've hidden on this earth to make sure no one ever finds out about will be revealed one way or another on that day. Uh, All of us will stand before that throne. And then there's another book, the Book of of life, uh, And the book of life uh, contains the names of those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior God has sent. Who during their life on earth, not afterwards, but during their life on earth, confessed their sins, repented from them, and put their hope in Christ the Savior. And if anyone's name, it says in Revelation 20, if anyone's name was not found in that book, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How do you know whether your name is in that book? You confess your sins. You put your hope in Christ here on this earth and not in some future day. Meanwhile, God's word is not ambiguous about the reality of hell. Uh, there, there are so many verses in Scripture that warn us about it. It's one of the clearest doctrines of Scripture. Maybe, it may not be easy to accept to swallow, to to live with that knowledge, but it's certainly not unclear in Scripture. God's Word teaches that hell is both eternal and terrible. Uh, Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus uh, warns that at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus describes hell as an outer darkness, uh, an utter distance, absolute distance between God, between other people. Uh, In Revelation, it's described as so terrible that those facing it long for death, for rocks to crush them. And it's eternal. Scripture teaches unambiguously that hell is not temporary, is not for a short time, is not a a way of getting ultimately into heaven. And it's certainly not an experience of just being deleted from existence. It is eternal suffering. Jesus says to His disciples, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your eye causes you to sin, he says, pluck it out. It's better to go into the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, there is no rest day or night, says Revelation. Uh, for, for those who worship the beast, Their smoke, uh, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever uh, there, there's no notion that hell will eventually, that your debt will eventually be paid. Indeed, uh, every indication is that sinners in hell are beyond the hope of repentance. They don't even repent, so their sins accumulate for eternity. They curse the name of God and, and, and dwell in torment for eternity. And that's the reality of, of hell. That's why the gospel calls us today in this life to confess our sins, to repent from them, and to believe in a Savior that God has given. It's not an insincere call. God means it when he calls us. Repent, believe, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, while you have breath in your lungs. And and, and take comfort in Christ's assurance as he says in John chapter 6, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, that day of judgment is quickly coming. Uh, We believe that about history. It's headed in that direction, rushing forward to that day. As Christ gathers his church and builds his kingdom, it has a final destination and so the gospel is here in front of us now confronting us now with our sin calling us now to repentance like the judgment of uh, of Jerusalem and like the judgment of Babylon like the judgment of Egypt like the judgment of Canaan uh, with all of its horrors uh, nobody knows the day or the hour god has shown us he will judge he means what he says and he's given us examples in history Uh, Things that right now seem permanent and indestructible, like the temple did to the disciples, will in a moment be destroyed. Those who live comfortably in the belief that now everything will go on as as it always has, uh, will see everything changed on that day. And, And each of us too must therefore see to it that we live as those waiting for that day, for the return of the King that could happen today. Don't leave anything undone that ought to be done. Don't leave anything unconfessed that ought to be confessed. Deal with your sin now. Trust in Christ now. And find hope in Him now while we still live. And on the other side, those whose names are written in the book of life will then receive their inheritance. That's our comfort, uh, especially for those who who are persecuted on this earth. They look forward to an inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled, that can't be taken away. Uh, The new heaven and the new earth, resurrected bodies that are free from all the afflictions we deal with in our bodies now, that are uh, healed, that are made perfect. And they will live with Christ on earth, a glorified earth, far better than the earth that's broken and fallen today. Uh, And they will reign with Christ forever. That's what we know. That's what the church confesses. That's what Scripture unmistakably teaches. And that should always then be the hope that defines our lives. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing from hymn 70.